I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we dig in the depths for wisdom. I'm Aaron Bishop here with my beautiful wife, Rebecca. Hey. And today we are in Job chapters 25, 26, 27, and 28. We got four chapters for today. And we could have kept going, but we decided we'd cut it there. Yeah, Job keeps going on for quite some time here, and uh, we have to cut it up. Otherwise, there's just going to be so much ground to cover. And frankly, we'll reach the end of the book way too quickly, which uh, some of you are probably hoping for at this point. But uh, <laughs> So today we hear the last little bit from the last of the first three friends. Yeah, Bildad has his mic drop moment. Yeah, he has just one little tiny thing to say. He basically says, I've said what I've said, and that's all I have to say. And then the rest is Job. It's only six verses is Bildad's little statement. Final jab. And then the rest is Job. And Job goes through several different uh, topics and in his response. And we're going to find that over the next couple of weeks as we really dig into Job's response. That he, he, he wanders through several different topics. And he addresses a lot of what's been said. But he also brings up some stuff that hasn't even been brought up before as he's trying to make sense of everything as he's trying to understand all that has happened to him. And some of what he says, it's again, it's like last week, it's going to be really confusing because it sounds like he's agreeing with his friends. Yeah, he's saying the same things that they said. And when I first read through it, I kind of thought he was mocking them saying, see, you, you know, you say all these things, but he never comes back with, you're wrong. Right. Well, he's not mocking. He's actually agreeing with them. Uh, he, In a surprising turn of events, or what might seem surprising after the way the book has been going, he comes right out and says, yeah, you're not wrong. I'll repeat it back to you just to prove that I know what you're saying is true. Where he does draw the line is he, he makes it clear that just because these things are happening to him doesn't mean that he is one of these unrighteous people. Yeah, it's like the friends see this as a prescription, cause and effect. If this is the effect, that must be the cause. Right. And that's not the way it works. And that's something that Job has gotten into previously in this book. And if you don't really understand the difference between that. We'll, we'll talk about it a, a little bit later. The difference between prescriptive and descriptive scripture. What is that phrase? Something does not equal causation. Correlation. Correlation does not equal causation. Right. Yeah. It's saying 
just because you have this result does not mean we know how it got there. Right. And I think that that is something very appropriate for this particular topic because they, they definitely all agree that the results that he is currently experiencing are common to those who are judged. Right. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he is actually being judged. Right. And that can be kind of difficult to come to terms with, uh, especially when your entire worldview is built on this, that if this happens, then that means that this was why. And Mm -hmm. we don't always get the why. There are judgments. They do happen. When they happen, this is how the, the wicked will come out in judgment. But not everything that happens is judgment. And that's one of the big points of this book. So let's go ahead and let's read these four chapters. And let's come back and let's discuss the various topics that Job touches on as he goes through. Job chapters 25 through 28. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered, Dominion and awe are with him. He establishes shalom in his heights. Can his armies be counted? On whom does his light not rise? How then can a man be righteous with God? How can one born of a woman be pure? If even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes, how much less man who is but a maggot, a son of man who is a worm? Then Job responded and said, How you have helped the powerless! How you have saved the arm without strength! How you have counseled the one without wisdom and revealed your abundant insights! To whom have you uttered words? Whose spirit has come from your mouth? The dead tremble, those beneath the water and all that live in them. Sheol is naked before him. Abaddon has no covering. He stretches out the north over the void. He suspends the earth over nothing. He wraps up the waters in his clouds, yet the clouds do not burst under them. He covers the face of the full moon, spreading his clouds over it. He marks out the horizon on the face of the waters for a boundary between light and dark. The pillars of heaven tremble, astounded at his rebuke. By his power he churns up the sea, By his understanding he smashed Rehab. By his ruach the heavens are clear. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Indeed, these are but glimpses of his ways. How faint the whisper we hear of him. Who then can understand the thunder of his might? And Job took up his discourse again, saying, As God lives who has deprived me of justice, Shaddai, who has made my soul bitter, As long as my breath is still in me, the Ruach of God in my nostrils, my lips will speak no injustice, nor will my tongue mutter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are just. Until I die, I will not set aside my integrity. I will maintain my righteousness and not let it go. My conscience will not reproach me for any of my days. May my enemy be like the wicked, my enemy like the unrighteous. For what hope has the godless when he is cut off, when God takes his soul? Will God hear his cry when trouble comes from comes upon him? Will he delight in Shaddai, 
Will he call upon God at all times? I will teach you about the hand of God. I will not conceal the ways of Shaddai. Look, you have all seen this yourselves. Why then this meaningless talk? This is the portion of a wicked man with God, the inheritance that the ruthless men receive from Shaddai. If his children increase, it is for the sword. His offspring will never have enough to eat. Those who survive him will be buried by the plague, and their widows will not weep. Though he piles up silver like dust and clothing like heaps of mortar, what he lays up the righteous will wear, and the upright will divide the silver. The house he built is like a moth's cocoon, like a hut made for a watchman. He lies down wealthy, but will gather no more. When he opens his eyes, all is gone. Terror overtakes him like a flood. A storm sweeps him away at night. The east wind picks him up, and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls itself at him without pity, as he flees headlong from its hand. It claps its hands at him in derision, and hisses him out of his place. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth, and copper is smelted from ore. Man puts an end to darkness. He searches to the farthest reaches for ore in gloom and blackest darkness. He cuts open a shaft far from dwellings in places forgotten by feet. Far from other people they dangle back and forth. The earth from which food comes is transformed as by fire. A place whose rocks are sapphires, its dust contains gold. No bird of prey knows the path, nor falcon's eyes have seen it. Proud beasts have not set foot on it, and no lion has passed there. Man sets his hand against the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He carves out tunnels through the rocks. His eyes see every precious thing. He dams up streams from flowing and brings hidden things to light. But where can wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? No mortal comprehends its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. The sea says, it's not with me. Pure gold cannot be given for it nor can its price be weighed in silver. It cannot be weighed in gold from Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Neither gold or crystal can compare with it, nor vessels of fine gold exchanged for it. No mention will be made of coral or jasper. The price of wisdom is more than pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot compare to it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from? Where is the place of understanding? It has been hidden from the eyes of all living things, concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and Death say, With our ears we have heard a rumor of it. God understands its way, and he knows its place. He looks to the end of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he made the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he set a limit for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at it, and assessed it, established it, and examined it. And he said to mankind, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Alright, so there is a lot of things that are covered in this. And there are a lot of things that are pulled out of this section that 
shouldn't necessarily be pulled out of that. And we'll get to that in a moment. First, let's look at Bildad, uh, the shoe height. Once again, the shortest man in the Bible. And uh, <laughs> let's look at kind of what he has to say. He basically finishes by saying, you know what? Judgment belongs to God. How could a man possibly be righteous before God? It's not possible. I can't conceive of it. So therefore, you're claiming it makes you unrighteous. Uh, because man is a maggot, there's a worm, and uh, even the, the moon doesn't shine brightly, and the stars have flaws in them, the, the, the speckles that you see when you try and stare at the stars. They, they have flaws in them. So if, if those things, which are so far beyond us, have flaws in them, then who are you? you son of a maggot, to say that you are righteous before God. Yeah, and this is, again, this is the same thing they've been saying this whole time. And this is the same thing that is, quite frankly, still taught in some circles today. Yes. And it was taught, maybe not quite so mic drop moment as this, but it was definitely taught where I grew up. And to a degree, it's not wrong. But to another degree, it is wrong. I mean, we are so far beneath him. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Who are we? Why would he love us? But he does. Right. But I don't think this has anything to do with, one, where a person comes from. So that's the idea of the total depravity that we've talked about before. When we are born, we're born sinful. And that's that's inescapable. Uh, yeah. the, the sin is actually part of our flesh. That's what the Bible teaches. Is it, It's not always something that we do. Sin is something that we are. Yeah, but it, the, go ahead. But the, the whole point of the Bible is that when God draws you near, that you are made into something different. And, and righteousness has to do with right action before God. And right action, uh, when we actually get into the prophets, we find out that right action has to do with your heart, has to do with your intention behind the action and not just the action itself. Right. Because even the Psalms with David, he's talking about, would that I could give a sacrifice to make up for the wrong that I did, which would be a right action. But God doesn't want a sacrifice. He wants a broken and contrite spirit. And, right. I mean, that one is particularly talking about a willful sin, which there is no sacrifice for. But the point is that it's the broken and contrite spirit. It's the heart of the matter. That's the point. Yeah, and we see that idea echoed in the prophet where the prophet says, basically, it's not sacrifice that God desires, but it is for a man to walk humbly with God. Uh, what Do justice, love idea. mercy, and walk humbly with God. But as we talked about last week and before, there is such a thing as sanctification. In theological circles, this is the argument over total sanctification. Can you reach a point in your life where you are totally sanctified before God to the point where you could be called righteous? through your actions, and uh, through the things that you do. And Job seems to make the point that, yes, yes, you can, in fact, be called righteous before God. All right, so Rebecca found it. It's Micah chapter 6, beginning in verse six. verse 6. Yeah. You want to read that real quick? Sure. 
With what shall I come before Adonai? With what shall I bow myself before God on high? Shall I present him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Will Adonai be pleased with thousands of rams, with hordes of rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my belly for the sin of my soul? He has told you, humanity, what is good and what Adonai is seeking from you, only to practice justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So it's not about what you do. And unfortunately, religion likes to make it about what you do. And there is an element of what you do and obedience that is necessary. But in truth, it's the heart behind the obedience that's what's important. You can obey all day long out of a sense of obligation or out of a sense of self-righteousness. Yeah, out of any uh, number of things. And you'd be totally off the mark when it comes to righteousness before God. But alternatively, you can do what little you know out of a sense of love and not do everything because you just don't know it, because you're ignorant of it. Right. And out of a sense of love, you you do what you do know and be called righteous before God. It's like the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. They kept the Torah so exactingly that they would tithe how many leaves were on their mint and their cumin plants. Right. But they didn't do what the Torah is supposed to do, which was care for people. And that's the difference. Right. And that's why Yeshua gets on to the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees throughout the Gospels is because they're doing what they do to be seen by men and to appear righteous, to, to put on that that patina of righteousness, but they don't have the heart behind it. And that's not to say that the entire group didn't. And this is a kind of off topic, but there were many Pharisees that came to believe in Yeshua. Mm -hmm. uh, all throughout the book of Acts, there's, there's Pharisees all throughout the book that are believers in Yeshua. They don't stop being Pharisees, but they are now Pharisees who believe in the Messiah. I mean, Saul was a Pharisee, and right. he even claims it near the end of his life. Right. A Pharisee was just a, a cross-section of belief, and they just added this one thing to what they already believed, that Yeshua is the Messiah, and they were good. And we can't lose sight of that. Not all Pharisees were evil or terrible. It can seem that way sometimes in the way that the New Testament steeps it, but they're not. So moving on into chapter 26, Job answers... And he begins by being extremely sarcastic once again with Bildad. I love sarcasm. It is fun. Well, this book is full of sarcasm. And so <laughs> it's right up your alley. Oh, how you've helped this power, this man. You've saved this one whose arm isn't strong. You've given counsel to the unwise and you've declared sound advice to many. He just goes on like that. Just... You've done such great things. You've been so helpful. Thank you so much. <laughs> Some serious passive aggressive right extremely there. Extremely passive aggressive. Job's fed up with these friends. And the friends are fed up with Job. Right. Which is why they stopped talking. They had their mic drop moment. They're, they're out. They're done. There's no getting through to this guy. We don't have anything more to say. Here's our piece. We're done. Which gives Job then an open floor to just talk and talk and talk for a while. Which, yeah, when you're in grief, does. is something you need to do. <laughs> right. When you're in grief, you need to talk uh, about it. That is 
super important. You've got to wrestle through it. And you can't just wrestle through it in your head. You've got to talk out loud. There, there's something cathartic about talking out loud to someone else about it. Well, it, it just gets it out. It, it gets it out, but it gets it into someone else. Mm-hmm. And, and it helps to share the load. And there's something psychological about that. I, I don't know if there's actually some sort of real spiritual effect that happens, but there is definitely something psychological that happens when you say it out loud and you know that someone's listening to your words. Even if you just write it down, it helps. But definitely speaking a sounding board, if you will, is extremely helpful. Yeah. And then he goes on to talk about how great God is. He's he's amazing. He stretched out the north and he hung the earth on space and he binds up the waters in his clouds and he Co- covers the face of the moon. Yeah, he covers clouds. covers the surface of his throne with clouds. He created a law surface for circling the water. Wait, where? Hmm? Where's the throne? Covers the circuit uh, verse 9. He covers the surface of his throne spreading his cloud over it. Huh, mine says he covers the face of the full moon. Job 26 verse 9. Let's get to the bottom. ESV says the full moon. So Takes hold of his possession, the face of his throne. Throne? Hmm. Yeah, kisei is the word. It's the throne or the seat of honor, which spreads the clouds or spreads upon the clouds. So, yeah, throne is the literal translation of that. I guess it... Uh, Maybe it's an idiom? Yeah. That they're uh, using to do the full moon? That's my guess, is they assume because he's talking about clouds, and what do you mean he covers his throne with clouds? Well, he must be talking about the moon, obviously. Uh, they've already mentioned stars and the moon before, so he's just responding with hmm. the same type of language. Interesting. And that could be, you know, but he continues on. He circles the face of the waters and separates light from dark, puts columns of the heaven and they tremble and are stunned at his reproof. He uses all of this figurative language to describe ancient Near East cosmology. Yeah. And I don't think he's literally... He's not being like, literal. Yeah. He's not like describing things as they actually are. Right. So a lot of people who believe in flat earth, and if you believe, good on you. I'm not going to criticize you for it. It, it. it comes from a heart of questioning. And it comes from a heart of, of observation, which are both admirable traits. But a lot of people who settle on that belief, they will turn to the Bible and they'll see language like this and use it as proof texts for, see, the earth is flat, because the Bible says so. Unfortunately, nearly every place that they can point to in Scripture that has something like this in it about how the earth works or the cosmology of the space and all of that, is all found in poetry. Mm-hmm. There are only a handful of places where it's in the midst of a narrative or it's in the midst of something else that's going on that's not poetic in nature, where you can find any kind of evidence for a flat earth in the Bible. Everywhere else, whether it's the Psalms, Job, Prophets, uh, all throughout, it's all in the poetry and it all comes from their own ideas of how the world worked. And I think that's a disservice to the text to take these poetic pieces and to say that they are literal. Or to change what it's even talking about. 
Right. You're missing the forest for the trees. Right. If you're looking at this and only going, see, that's the shape of the earth. It That's not the point of this entire conversation. Right. So it it's doing a disservice to the text. It's doing a disservice to your interpretation of the text for sure, because the text is about how great God is and that he made creation. It's not about the, the methods and the means. It's about Job looking out on the earth, knowing how the world works according to his own mind, and saying, see, God did that. It'd be right. like a modern scientist looking out into the depths of space and saying, see, God did that. But not knowing how any of those pull on each other and, and move galaxies around. I mean, we don't know a fraction of what's in space. Right. And that is being proven by the new James Webb telescope. Some of the things that they're seeing has completely thrown a wrench into so much of what was thought to be current and good cosmology. And with this new telescope that's super great detail, they're able to actually find a lot of things that are completely unexpected, which uh, is going to cause an entire revamp of origins. It has to. Uh, otherwise, they're just going to have to discard this evidence and say, well, it doesn't matter. And so even now, just like with the organs that we've talked about earlier being found in the human body, this new space telescope is finding things that completely contradict the current narrative of how the universe was created. The fact of the matter is, we don't know. And it's okay. Right. We can totally sit in the unknowing and be all right with it. The point isn't that we know everything. The point is that we know who does. And the point also is not that, and we'll, we'll get into this in a minute, but so many people approach the Bible as though it's it's got prescriptions in it. Mm -hmm. uh, that this is what happens, you know, if you get a cough, then you take this. If you have this particular symptom, then you must have this particular sickness. And that's not what the Bible is at all, especially the wisdom literature. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but uh, I also talked about it when we went through the book of Deuteronomy. And we talked yes. about how biblical law works. And uh, it's super important. So let's go ahead and move on and get to that. Uh, chapter 27, he again, Job takes up his discourse. And he begins by saying, I'm righteous. I I've researched my heart. I've gone through everything. I've thought back on my history. I can't think of anything I haven't repented of. And I haven't done anything else to deserve any of this. And he says... Far be it from me to say that you are just, because they're being unrighteous, right? And they're being unjust. They're they're saying, "Well, you clearly are in in sin, Job." And he's saying, "Look, my righteousness will not allow me to justify what you're saying. Agreeing with you would be sin." Yeah, agreeing with them would be an act of unrighteousness, and his integrity prevents him from doing that. And he's making the same old argument he's made this entire time, which is what makes the end of chapter 27 so dang confusing. Right. Because he then says, Let me teach you by the hand of God that which is with the Almighty, and I do not hide. See, all of you have seen it. Why then are you altogether vain? This is the portion of the wrong man with God and the inheritance of the cruel ones which they receive from the Almighty. And he basically says what all of his friends have been saying all along. Yep. 
which, if you're really paying attention to the text, makes you sit up and go, what the heck just happened? Why is Job, in one half of this chapter, he's saying, you are all wrong. And in the second half of this chapter, he's saying, you are all right. Mm -hmm. How can they be both right and wrong? And the answer has to do with how they're reading the text. Because what they're saying is not wrong. We find this type of language throughout Scripture. Psalm 1 is a great example of that. Just go read Psalm 1 and sit and contemplate it for a while as you look out on the earth, especially if you're in some sort of grief or trauma. Look at that and go, what the heck is this talking about? Why can't it say this this sort of thing when my own experience doesn't reflect that? Right. And it's because it's not a prescription. It's right. talking about... How, how can we even say it? It's not cause and effect. Okay. So in, in our modern world, we see the world as cause and effect. We look for this thing happen to make this other thing happen. We're very scientific. We are very literal. We're very enlightened. Uh, since the Enlightenment period of the 1600s, we have become extremely intelligent. And we've completely shifted how we perceive the world. The ancient mind didn't necessarily care about cause and effect or or uh, how things came into being. They cared more about the function of a thing. So when you read Genesis 1 and the description of creation, they weren't conceptualizing, you know, Big Bang cosmology or evolution or anything like that. They're talking about these things being created for a function. God going through and creating places that they've noticed in their own world actually do function. The waters, the heavens, the stars, the sun, the moon, the animals, and their, their places of function. And so right. it's describing those. And it's also using temple language uh, with the seven days of creation and so on and so forth. But our mind looks at it and we go, oh, it's describing the hows of creation. It's describing the what's of creation. Yeah, the, and that's, that's completely wrong. And that's, that's not how they would have conceptualized it at all. And what the friends are attempting to do with these statements of the Bible that say the righteous shall prosper, but the wicked shall perish, they're making them prescriptions. They're making them scientific if-then statements, which they are not. Right. They are generalized statements, which we find all through wisdom literature. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes was full of them. The book of Proverbs is packed full of these things. And they're not prescriptions for, if you do this, then this will happen. They're more generalized statements that, if you do this, you'll tend to get this sort of outcome. Right. Which is a completely different thing. Uh, it's more like looking at the world as a uh, quantum scientist, which bases everything on probability, rather than a hard materialist science, which does a whole lot of if-then, billiard balls bouncing around, knocking off of each other, cause-and-effect type equations. Two different sciences and two different ways of looking at how the world functions. Both of them correct. But the quantum scientist can't ever have any certainty in any of his conclusions. There's always an uncertainty principle at play. And so everything is probability. We have to look at the law. We have to look at these statements in that light. There is that uncertainty principle in play, for one. Okay, so that's the difference between prescriptive law, the certainty principle, if-then statements, and descriptive law, general descriptions, uncertainty principle, probabilities type law. The 
The second thing that's going on here is these friends, they're saying these things happen to the wicked. So because they're happening to you, you must be wicked. And that is where they And they're completely wrong. missing the point that these things can happen to good people as well. Right. They're not even allowing that to be part of their conceptual framework. Which is why Bildad says what he says. You can't be righteous. You can't be righteous before God. There's no possible way. No man can be righteous before God. How dare you say you're righteous before God? It doesn't even enter their, their conceptual framework. And so they're, they're missing the, the whole point. Their, their equation that they've created is backwards. It's like saying that the catcher caught the baseball, therefore the pitcher must have thrown it. We don't know that. Maybe the catcher threw the baseball and caught his own baseball. Maybe the umpire threw the baseball and caught it. Maybe, <laughs> Maybe the first, first baseman, baseman threw it and he <laughs> caught the baseball. It, it, it doesn't follow. Just, be, just because you have a conclusion that might be true, you can't draw a cause from your conclusion without also examining the cause, which they're not doing. They're looking at the conclusion and saying, well, because this conclusion occurred, it has to have come from this cause. When there's no guaranteed correlation between the two. Right. And we have to be careful also that we don't do that sort of thing ourselves. When we deal with situations like this in our own lives and the lives of others, that we don't draw conclusions based on the result. Without and it's hard. knowing anything of what happened beforehand. That is probably one of the biggest things that we do as humans. It is. It's... And it's very, very easy to do that. It's hard not to. Right. But we have to stop ourselves. We have to stop and examine what we're actually saying. Right. And so that's why Job is able to say here at the end of 27 the things that he says, because his friends weren't wrong. When it's descriptive wisdom, it's not wrong at all. It is absolutely correct. That is the way that things tend to work. It's not the way that things will always work. Right. And we have to understand that, especially when we see Job sitting here going, yeah, you're right, but you're wrong because I'm not these guys. And chapter 28 really gets into the heart of the whole book. So many of you know, I do a lot of work with literary patterns, finding the ways that the text fits together and themes that are highlighted throughout the text, specifically in areas like chiasms and such. Uh, if you haven't seen it, go to the patternsoflifebible.com. It's an entire framework that we're putting together to highlight these patterns in the text. Well, Job is not on the site yet, but it has been finished for those who donate to the Patterns Bible Project. All of our patrons are able to view Job right now in its pattern form. And chapter 28 is the center of the book. <laughs> it's not the center of the book text-wise. We are way past the halfway point if we're counting characters. We're way past the halfway point if we're counting chapters. But as far as themes go in the book, chapter 28 is the center. And if you really look at it and read it and ponder it and consider it, you'll recognize it doesn't necessarily fit with everything that's happened before. Because everything that's come before has all been arguments over, you're righteous, no, you're wicked, you're righteous, you're wicked. Does God work this way? Does God not work this way? And all of a sudden, here at the end of all of the friends' arguments, 
Job goes through this consideration of the nature of wisdom. One of the things that they have accused him multiple times of is being unwise. Right. And he, is, and he has thrown that right back, right back in their, their faces. faces. Yeah. And this is a huge sign that he's beginning to come out of his grief. When he's beginning to think about abstract concepts, once again, that are not directly connected to the events of his grief. Yeah, he's not busy defending himself from the attackers. He's not busy wondering about what happened. He's not in the depression. He's not in the anger. He's in curiosity once again. Yeah, it's definitely showing that his his brain and the trauma is starting to heal. Yes. And, and it's this halfway point in the book where we see this true light in Job's psyche of him being able to conceptualize the abstract concepts like wisdom and to begin to philosophically think about this 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 thing that's not connected directly to his trauma. And it's important and it's and that's one of the things that makes it so significant as the center of the book, because it is the turning point of Job's healing process. But it's also the central theme of the entire book from front to end is what is wisdom? How do we gain wisdom? How do we find wisdom? And throughout chapter 28, the resounding answer is. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Which honestly, it's appropriate for this book. Right. Because this whole book is going, wait, what just happened? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, maybe this happened. No, this happened. No, this happened. No, this happened. I'm sure of it. No, you're all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's pretty much Job in a nutshell. Right. So chapter 28, this the central theme of the book is where do we find wisdom from? How do we gain wisdom? We've got the three friends mm -hmm. who are all going through their own wisdom traditions. We've got the friend who's set on his doctrine. We've got the friends that are set on his tradition. We've got the friend that's set in his own self-righteousness and zeal. We've got all three of those ideas being on full display here through the friends. And Job's going, none of those are working. And Job's got his own his own wisdom in in his experiences in right. his in, his, in past. his past in his knowledge of what he has and has not done right so he's hanging on to his own version of wisdom as well right and and chapter 28 is so beautiful because it likens wisdom to uh gems mm -hmm. to to precious stones gold silver opals uh, sapphires and so on and so forth that and it opens with, you know, we can go and we can dig into the earth. We can go to the darkest places. We can, we, we're, humanity is amazing in what we've been able to accomplish. Clearly they have poetry. Clearly they have, you know, kings and princes and, and Tradition traditions and, and, and doctrine and teachings. And, and I mean, they're, yeah. they're not uneducated people. Right. But, the the description of them mining and and all of a sudden it's just it's just not something I even fathomed right you know right and, and he's going into this and 
saying we can do all of this amazing thing. We can find the most precious of materials here on the earth. But wisdom, wisdom is like this gem and we cannot find it. We can't build tunnels deep enough. We can't build stairs high enough. We can't, we can't go seeking it and find it on this earth. And nothing on this earth can be traded for it. Wealth cannot compare in any way. Right. And it's so beautiful, but the very central portion of this book is just two verses. And uh, they really sum up the book perfectly. It's a uh, verse 12 and 13. And wisdom, where it is found, and where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, and it is not found in the land of the living. That's it. That is the center of the book of Job, is those two verses. Yeah. And you could sit it's and profound. dwell on those. It really is profound. Out of everything that's been said in this book, that is so deeply profound. Because Job's recognizing, you know what? None of us probably have it right. And we're not going to know until we're dead. And we're not going to know until we're dead. But there at the very end, the, the last... The last verse of chapter 28, uh, we see in it an echo from the book of Proverbs. And he said to man, see the fear of Adonai, that is wisdom. And to turn from evil is understanding. That, that is almost directly lifted from the book of Proverbs or quoted by the book of Proverbs. The fear of Adonai is the beginning of wisdom, is the proverb. That's a famous proverb. And we see it repeated here in the book of Job. And it's just such a beautiful thing. And what Job has to say here is rather fascinating because what Job is saying is that we cannot seek for wisdom in the place of the living, in the land of the living. It's not to be found in the earth. It's not to be found in the heavens. It's not to be found by examining our world around us and drawing conclusions. That's not where wisdom is found. And then he goes to verse 23 and he says, the God understands its ways. He right. knows its place. Right. Well, there's another verse in the Bible that uh, tells us how, in essence, to get wisdom. It's James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. So, James says, if you're without wisdom, don't go searching and digging and trying to turn to science or philosophy or all these other things to look for wisdom. Simply ask God for wisdom and he'll give it to you. He'll reveal wisdom to you. And chances are he's going to do it by putting you through some circumstances. That's and how Job not is going to be comfy. They're not necessarily going to be comfy. And that's because that's how Job is gaining his wisdom. Mm -hmm. He's gaining wisdom by going through circumstances and having the reality of the world revealed to him. Through his pain and through his trauma and through his his depression, he is being given and granted wisdom. And so that has to be something that we don't shy away from. Wisdom can be found. Wisdom can be achieved. But you're never going to find it if you're buried in a book all the time. If, you're, if your nose even, is stuck in a science frankly, book. frankly, even if that book is the Bible. Right. Without guidance from the Holy Spirit, without guidance from God, you can have your nose in the Bible all day long and gain nothing from it. But if you lack wisdom, 
ask God. Yep. And he'll he's going to give it to you. He'll give it abundantly. Now, is that a prescription? Nope. Not necessarily, but nope. it is something that we can definitely pursue. And that is a relationship with God. Yeah, because and the reason I say no is not because if you ask God, sometimes he won't give it to you, but it's more because he's going to give it to you, but you have to search. You have to look. Right. He's not just going to plop it in your lap. He's not going to just hand it to you on a silver platter. It's not like, God, what should I do? Should I marry this guy or that guy? Oh, you! I asked and he just told me. Wisdom. Ding. No, that's not how this works. He says through circumstances. He, he tells you through, through your circumstances. He tells you through people. People will give you l- little tiny words of wisdom. He will put people in your life that speak truth into your life. He will put problems that you have to solve that helps you learn more. He's not going to just write it on the clouds for you. Now, I would, I'd be very careful saying that he's not going to just do that because there is a gift of the spirit that is the gift of wisdom. And God does just give wisdom to some people. And okay, so there are there fair. are some times and there are some people where that does happen that way. But for the rest of us, for the wisdom most is, of us, wisdom is hard one. It's something that we have to work at through a relationship with God. And I dare say that even those with the gift of wisdom, it is something that they have to cultivate to understand. True. Well, you have to do that with any gift. You have to use a gift in order to to be able to use a gift, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, but regardless, uh, wisdom can be found. It is something that God does give his people. It's something that you do have to search for. It is something that you do have to pray for and ask for. And it is something that you can find. You're just not going to find it here in the things of this earth. So exclusively. Right, isn't yeah, exclusively. That's a it's a good caveat. Mm-hmm. So don't ever stop seeking for wisdom. Don't ever take the stance of, well, Job says it can't be found, so I guess I'll just stop searching. Because it can be found. It can be attained. It can be achieved through that relationship with God. So while you seek for wisdom, don't forget to also seek life. And all that you do. Shalom. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.